support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington. Welcome to At Length, our second season of Conversations, where we take a little more time and delve a little deeper into the profound issues of our era. I'm Steve Scher. As part of the University of Washington Graduate School's Equity and Difference series, Associate Professor Relina Joseph has a public lecture, What's the Difference with Difference? Professor Joseph is the Director of the Center for Communication, Difference, and Equity. She's also co-founder of WIRED, Women Investigating Race, Ethnicity, and Difference, and chair of the Critical Ethnic Studies Committee of the American Studies Association. Her first book, Transcending Blackness, From the New Millennium Mulata to the Exceptional Multiracial, critiques anti-black racism in mixed-race African-American representations in the decade leading up to President Obama's 2008 election. What's the Difference with Difference? is about the power of language to open or close doors to equity and opportunity. On the mission statement page of the website for the Center for Communication, Difference, and Equity is a quote. Audre Lord writes, It is not our differences that divide us. It is our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. That is a very positive way of framing what has been the most contentious aspect of human human yes. development. Yeah. Um, does that empower you? Does that make you feel good? Uh, does that concept? I think that this, it, it gets me going. Um, I think that part of what I'm talking about in, in the talk are the, all of the things that arise, the problems with seeing difference, in particular with seeing difference without seeing equity without making sure that issues of power and privilege and inequality are central in our, our discussions of difference. But the flip side of that, this is how I end the talk, is that we need to figure out the places where we come together as a disparate group of people in order to fight for a better world. And the true change can really only happen if we all figure out how to, at different points, see our difference, but to put them aside to fight for change. He, he, the way, what I took from this quote is that we weren't putting aside our differences. We were, in, we were celebrating them. I think that we're, we're celebrating them, um, but in order to, we're not letting our actions stop at celebration. We, okay. we are working through another word, which is coalition. And that means that we're not working through our identity issues, but instead we're working through the issues of poverty, right? All of the issues that, for example, Black Lives Matter are bringing us, the issues of black disproportionality in the criminal justice system. We're we're working through the issues of black disproportionality in uh, schooling at the university, in the foster care system, in every measure of life from your moment of birth to your moment of death we know is racialized. And 
difference is the way that it's racialized, but also difference can't stop us all from working on those issues. And that's what gets kind of tangled up in our fights for, for change, right? These questions of identity. When do we work through the questions of identity? Because that's where it gets contentious for people. Well, you're saying I'm X because of how I look. Right. Or, or you're treating me this way because of, of my, I, my racial identity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when, when, does, when do we work through that? Is it parallel? Is it, does it precede the, the, the celebration of difference and the, and the organizing? Yeah, I think that it, ha- it, it de- that definitely has to happen, our own working through of identity. And for, for white people in particular, I think that it, it needs to happen with other white folks, that conversations of race and ethnicity, that conversations of privilege, of conversations about how white people can be engaged in struggles for liberation need to happen first amongst white people. You know, in other words, white white people need to see the realities of of the culture and where they fit into it. And they need to not wait for for black people to or for people of color to guide them towards the answer. They need to fight for the answers themselves. Right. Well, hasn't that been the way much of America has sort of perceived it? Oh, uh, Martin Luther King tells me how to act. Right. I need a. I need. If I have questions about race, I turn to an African American, mm-hmm. rather than understanding that those are questions. Those are self. Those are internal questions because of where we exist in this culture. Right. Absolutely. And that white people have a race. I think that a, on a very basic level, I think that some white people honestly think that race is something that's not for me. That simply I can check out of that conversation. Right. Do you ever look at white studies books and, and white studies uh, literature? I see you have up there the history of white people, which was yeah. one of those interesting Nell books. Painter. Yeah, yeah. it's fabulous. Um, yeah, I mean, my PhD is in ethnic studies. So, uh, and the the real, um, when, when white studies kind of crested in importance was in um, the mid to late 90s when I was in, was I was in graduate school. Um, I think that that work is, is incredibly important um, and I love someone like, like Nell Painter. I think that the reason that it has, has gone out of favor in many circles is that whiteness studies was picked up upon as, again, as providing the set of answers, right, the safe scholarship that white people could turn to. And many scholars of color said, well, wait a second, we've been making these arguments for centuries now, and no one listened to us. And yet when you turn it around... And, and and white people are seeing race, then it becomes valid. So I think that it's a it's a it's a it's a kind of a double edged sword. On the one hand, it's the the really important work about whiteness and privilege and power that needs to happen. But what some scholars of color I think um, are pointing out is that these lessons can only be learned when they are coming from white folks. Not the case of Nell Painter, but for um, other whiteness studies work. I think that if you look at, at some whiteness studies work, I'm, I'm intentionally not naming scholars um, from from the 90s, the early 2000s in particular, you can see that many of their arguments are what, in fact, um, W.E.B. Du Bois was saying, are what Toni Morrison writes about, 
right? And yet that's not considered to, that work is not considered to be whiteness studies. It's not, it's not celebrated as providing the true insights into whiteness. Why not? No, because this it sounds to me like this is where we completely have broken down because isn't it a universal philosophical discussion? It, it should be. Absolutely. Um, I think that because of who is seen to have credibility, I think that that there's a way in which a white person making these statements would seem to be more impartial, would seem to um, perhaps just just have more more credibility. Um, again, that's based on the fallacy that white people don't have race. It also so it also seems that this is where discussions of difference, um, a shift from the discussion of diversity, mm-hmm. shifted mm-hmm. to difference because difference yeah. seems is a is a more uh, inclusive term, more universal term. Um, is that is that accurate? Uh, this this is what I'm talking a little bit in my talk. I think that that. The reason that, that difference is right now having having a moment of popularity is honestly because it has a certain amount of newness to it. So diversity is is tainted by this kind of a, the failed diversity project is tainted by the um, the kind of the the attempt to institutionalize uh, diversity in unsuccessful ways and 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 to then not look at equity. I think that some people are turning towards difference because it gives it opens up the opportunity to reintroduce these issues of power and privilege into the debate. Um, and it, yes, it gives us a space to talk about about race um, along with gender um, and sexual orientation and disability and class. But I think also for me, or the argument that I'm trying to make is that difference also gives us at this new moment a way to think about equity, to think about disproportionality. Does diversity lead to tokenism? Can it lead to tokenism? Oh, that's a question, Steve. Um, I think that any time that, that people of color are rolled out not for the value that they bring, but for the symbol, right? For for their 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 kind of ability to be a symbol. Um, that's when we have tokenism. So I don't think under any there's no term that's going to prevent power abuses like tokenism. Well, I look at some of the books you have on your shelf in your office here, where we are. Uh, Dispatches from the color line. I used that book in a class I was teaching. Um, uh, the history of white people. There was one more diversity in mass in U.S. mass media. Um, I mean, this is a gimme I'm I'm offering you to <laughs> to, but I mean, it seems like this is where we're breaking down. Those are addressed to me mm. as an as a human American. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those are issues that I need to understand. In the same way, if I'm reading about, well, you have it right there: black, white, and Jewish autobiography of a shifting self. Or um, I look at the history of, of Jews in America mm-hmm. because my parents came and, yeah. and my grandparents came in the 1910s. Yeah, yeah. Those are those those sh- that's interesting to me. That should be interesting mm-hmm. to you. Um, wh- what's caused the polarization of? I'll call it scholarship, but really it's mm. the polarization of information. It's polarization of sharing mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. Be- 
unless you unless you don't think we are polarized, but it sounds like you do. <laughs> I do, I do, I do indeed. I mean, I think a lot of this is the kind of the 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 like and and unlike the unlike the like and different, right? I think that all of us as humans, it is our our at our base instinct to see those of us who are like us and similar to us um, as a positive, as, as part of our in-group, to see those who are different as potentially as negative as that out-group, right? And we are automatically invested in seeing those who are like us um, and seeing that they have, that their fates are positive ones, right? That they get that, that, that step up, that we mentor those who we see to be like us. This is a problem because it, it reproduces inequalities, yes. right? Um, but also it says that by my – I saw a T-shirt somebody was wearing. Um, s- some of us are, are melanin ch- – for no, no, it was a phrase somebody used. For those of you who are melanin <laughs> challenged. Uh-huh. But what that that's a nice flipping mm-hmm. of concepts, right? Mm-hmm. Because then it just looks at what the difference is. Right. Just there's the difference is skin deep. Yeah. I mean, there are cultural, they're right. social. We understand right. that. But that's all – Based right. on how we're raised and, right. and how we're treated and where we fit yeah. in the culture, but if it starts with me seeing you as different because you you and I have different melanin uh, components, then we're we're still playing the same games Genghis Khan was playing. But I think that so so that's certainly one way to see race is through different phenotype. But what critical race scholars look at is the way in which race has value in all of these historic structural ways what how whiteness becomes not just melanin but property right this is what cheryl harris a critical legal scholar critical race scholar talks about whiteness is property so that that was um, because whiteness became something that i would say oh that's us and not you that's the us and then thing again, yes right? yes yes that then structured who has access and who doesn't have access i mean that that that's what Black Lives Matter, as a consciousness-raising project, is trying to get us all to see. Um, so that that it's, not, it's not about one individual accepting another individual on a certain level. That's important, right? Um, as a society, that would be wonderful. But it's about all of the ways in which race impacts the things that we're not seeing, the ways in which home loans are written. Um, the more studies come out, the more we see that every way in which we have our, our human lives are lived are racialized, and this is an accidental. When you say yes, and that's been the that's been the that's been the history of this nation from the get go. When yes. when when Madison and and Jefferson were arguing about whether we're going to have two thirds, we're going to count two thirds mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. of the slave pop the enslaved population because it affects how much power the southern states will have right. in the Constitution. Right. It, it, and before that, of course, as well. Yeah. When when you stand in the Alabama State Capitol and you look up at the murals, and it's a mural mm-hmm. of 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 black stevedores unloading ships mm-hmm. and and white men standing there with their um, clipboards mm-hmm. that's uh one way to read that is as they read it in alabama oh look at the look at the wealth that is created in our great state mm-hmm. through industry mm-hmm. the other way to read it is look at how free labor was used to build mm-hmm. the wealth of this nation right enslaved labor was used to build the wealth mm-hmm. of this nation but that is a unit that pe- that has to be a universal understanding right mm-hmm. black lives matter speaks to me as to you mm-hmm what keeps what if you think it is still broken down what keeps breaking that down 
I think that that our segregated lives have to be a huge part of this, right? The way in which um, who kind of constitutes our, 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 our intimate spaces, who are our best friends, not just who do we talk to at work or who do we sit next to in class, but who becomes family to us really helps to, to constitute who becomes that insider and who becomes the outsider. And that's a really fundamental, our, our, our world is really based upon trying to keep people separate, right? If you look at our school populations, for example, um, where are our least diverse and where are our most diverse populations and how that, that correlates with, with, with privilege and poverty, right? Um, the, the least diverse populations are on, on both ends are the most privileged and the most dispossessed. You said that the, one of the things that happens in the center is that the, that the room next to us is open for difficult conversations. Yes. What kind of difficult conversations have you heard? Wow. So we, we try and create a safe space for students and students who really feel like they're not, they don't have a home in, um, in their classrooms. They don't necessarily have a room if they're walking around at the hub. Um, so they can go in there and talk about the ways in which they are not treated like students, the ways in which um, they're not called on in class, the ways in which when they speak in class, the professor will skip over what they say and talk to the next person. They can talk about being in a dorm and having a classmate um, obsessed with their hair and trying to tell them, you know what, you actually can't, you can't touch my hair. I can't be kind of a petting project for you. So all of the ways in which um, students of color meet a predominantly white institution and all of the ways in which they rub against the institution um, are the things that, that, that they're talking about. Are students of, are white students coming to these conversations and engaging in the difficult uh, conversations too? We, we do have white students. Um, do you want that? Absolutely, absolutely. However, we don't want to be a space that's catering to white students. So what I, what I mean by that is I think that it's, it's very important that white students be in that space, learn from that space, participate in that space, but not that they're just there to learn about race from students of color. Back to where we started. Mm -hmm, exactly. That they are invested in doing the hard work themselves, just as the students of color are. And, and what I found that is that if you don't have a, a, a space that, that has a majority of students of color, um, which of course is in the Pacific Northwest, you have to work to create, that the concerns of white folks end up being what guide the conversation. Um, and for our students, that's, that's their experience in every other part of their life here on campus. And so we want to create an alternate to that. I was on a campus in uh, the South where um I think it was University of Mississippi, mm. where the student, where where the the black students had basically proclaimed that Thursday evening in this plaza was was going to be a space where they would mingle and and walk and uh, and and recreate a, a, a culture. Uh huh. Claim the space as their and own. Claim the space as their own. Yeah. Um. And that's what you're doing. 
I think I think we're trying to. I think that we we want for for this institution, we want for the University of Washington to to provide our students, our underrepresented minority students, with all of the benefits that every student receives here. We want for our students here to to have the best internships, to be able to do an honors thesis, to be able to go on to graduate school in whatever his or her desired field is that happens with careful mentorship, that care- happens through through the creation of community and feeling like this is my own space. I have the right to ask for a mentor. I have the right to be in my professor's office for, for office hours trying to really puzzle through these questions that are that are that are going to help me but that are probably going to also ensure that I do better on my exam. Isn't that the job of the of the it's not called the Office of Minority Affairs anymore, right? Office of Minority Affairs and Diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that isn't that their role as isn't that their overarching role? Why did why did you have to, or why did you have to take it on through through this department or is it that every department needs a center for communication difference and equity so it's absolutely that 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 is one of the named goals of omad um, and they do a wonderful job with that but if you talk to faculty of color and many advisors of color we're all doing that extra work as well our jobs are not just here being professors but we are mentors sometimes we're second parents we're reaching out in different ways because students are reaching out to us and we know that we got here with that hand up, and so we want to provide that as well. I think that one of the wonderful things about the center is that it this becomes a regular part of what happens in in at the university in a different space outside of OMAD. It would be amazing if we had the same thing duplicated across the university, where students who are not necessarily brought into the fold can feel like they are our stars here that they have every opportunity to um, succeed, not just to kind of, you know, to, to, to eke out a degree, but really, truly succeed. I know you followed the free speech debates mm-hmm. across campus, mm-hmm. campuses. Yeah. The ACLU says don't regulate the speech mm-hmm. because in the end that those tools can be turned against you, but it also violates the principle. Instead, yeah. make sure you have harassment laws. Yeah. Make sure you have stalking laws. Right. Make sure you enforce those laws. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, you know, fighting words laws. Yeah. And that otherwise it must be an issue of uh, constant uh, education and mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, along the lines of, of um, what you had talked about uh, in an interview I heard you say. Mm. That um, you hear something that you feel is racist with somebody you care about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You say, look. We have right now at this moment mm-hmm. we have to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we need other institutional regulations, or do we need mm. here, here, here yeah. at UW, or do yeah. we need instead to make sure we're, that those difficult conversations aren't just happening in that room? Yeah. Um, the, for me, just my my, and I have not I have not researched actually what we have in terms of faculty code or university code here, um, but imposing additional laws to regulate speech makes me nervous, right? As a scholar, that makes me nervous. I don't want for someone to regulate what I have to say. Um, 
I think we have the responsibility, faculty have the responsibility to make sure that our, our classrooms are safe and engaging spaces for all of our students. So that means that if someone says something that is that is unsafe, that is read as, if not hate speech, then fairly hateful, that we have to step bigoted, in. Bigoted too? Um, bigoted or coded. I mean, coded. we use the word microaggressions a lot. That feels like it might might be a microaggression to another student in the class. We have the, the responsibility to step up and to address that. Then and there? I mean, I, I, that, that, that's what, that's where I tend to go. I think that it's, it's easier if that's the tone that you set on the first day. If you explain, that's what you're going to do. If you say, listen, this is not about, about personally me, me attacking you, but it's about making sure that I'm creating a space that's safe for all of the students. Making sure that it happens then and there, and then that you have a follow-up conversation with the student who perhaps was unknowingly microaggressing, as well as the student who might have really taken offense to that comment. Um, I mean, it's our, our responsibility to, to, to shepherd in our 21st century citizens who know how to have conversations with each other. And that's what we're what what we as faculty should be modeling is how to have those difficult conversations by at times saying, wait a second, what did you just say there? Can we can we back up? Let's think about that. Let's think about our words. Let's think about our language. Let's think about uh, the impact of them. You know, Professor, I know this is your discipline. This is your intellectual approach. This is your philosophy. But I'm, I'm just trying to dig to something. Yeah. When did it become something you were passionate about? Oh gosh, I think that I've I've always been interested in issues of of inequality. Um, that's the way that I've seen. From the when world. you were a little kid. From when I was a little kid, I come from an interracial family, and so I I definitely in the Washington D.C. area. Um, in that my parents got married in the in the early '70s, right, just a couple of years after the Loving versus Virginia decision. So you know. I think that we were used to as a family being scrutinized and then that in turn gives you kind of an insight into what other people are always thinking about or asking. If, you're, if your family is always being asked for their legitimacy, then you kind of question what is legitimacy. Yeah. Gets wearying, I imagine. Um, or is it empowering? It, does I think as as a as an adolescent that's what I see a lot of a lot of our students experiencing it certainly gets wearying, um, but at this point in my life I I think that I I have so many privileges to be able to speak to be able to speak to you, to be able to speak to so many hundred people that um, I don't have that excuse anymore. Privilege for me to speak to you too. Thank you very much. You can find out more about the work of the Center for Communication Difference and Equity at their website. Professor Joseph is working on her second book, Speaking Back to Screens, How Black Women on Television Resist Post-Identity Culture, a television studies examination of African-American women in modern television. For more about the work Professor Relina Joseph is doing, go to her website. Thank you for listening to At Length. Subscribe to our podcast, won't you? You can find it on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Share it. You can always download the podcast. Search for At Length with Steve Scher. Our next interview, scheduled to coincide with another upcoming lecture that's part of the UW Equity and Difference series, will be with Professor Minaz Afridi of Manhattan College. She'll be talking about freedom, religion, and racism in Jewish-Muslim encounters. Hope you intend the lecture and listen to our podcast. I'm Steve Scher.
Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington.